God's grace and the riches of God's grace toward us is not tolerance of sin. And I think all of those three titles um, really uh, try and encapsulate what's in this particular uh, chapter. It's only 13 verses, but uh, it would be nice at the end um, to, to hear from you guys about churches that you've been in that have faced these issues and how they've faced them. Because if they're not handled correctly and they're not handled um, soon after they become um, um, known about, um, they can actually be quite a danger to the, to the existence of the church. Um, and so uh, it, it's, as I say, it's the ticking time bomb. And uh, my wife and I and my children, we were at a very large church in the 90s. And um, this issue really came up amongst the leadership and it did massive damage um, to the existence of the church. Uh, and it is um, basically just a shadow of its um, original uh, size because these issues weren't addressed. And it's really important that, um, that uh, we, we watch over these things in churches. Uh, and and I'm, not to, I'm not saying that we have a pharisaical um, attitude because Jesus warns the um, church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 that um, in watching out for doctrine and certain other um, rigid uh, behaviours, they actually lost their first love. And uh, that's a critical thing in, um, in modern Christianity that we concentrate on the fact that uh, um, you know, God first loved us, which and he made a way for us to return that love back to him. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, that, that uh, I had people come up to me on Sunday, you know, I, there was a couple there that we used to fellowship with uh, 20 years ago and we've kept in contact and we, we used to sort of meet together. And they came and they attended the church on Sunday and they were just blown away by the, the sense of fellowship and warmth and, and love there. So um, it's critical that, um, you watch over that, you watch over your church, and um, you, you jealously guard the, the um, sense of um, togetherness that uh, a healthy church has. And so we're looking at some of the dangers that uh, occur in churches in this particular, um, in this particular chapter. And so let's have a look, uh, chapter five, verse one. We start off with Paul saying it's actually reported and uh, this is because of Chloe's letter that Chloe and her family wrote to Paul when he was actually back in Ephesus at this time about all of these issues that were happening in the, in the Corinthian church and there was divisions and there was um, um, vanity and there was um, self-promotion and all the rest of it. And all of these issues came up um, uh, before Paul because of Chloe writing with a, almost with a broken heart that these things were going on in the Corinthian church. One of the big problems with the Corinthian church is that Corinth at that time was one of the most um, um, sexually immoral cities in the Roman Empire. And it was very difficult for the new believers in this church that Paul had started to divorce themselves from their old lifestyles 
and become new creations in Christ, which I mentioned later on in this in this lesson. But if you don't, if you can't do that, you end up um, almost destroying your Christian witness in the society that you live in, because we're supposed to be uh, salt and light and and provide uh, unbelievers with a clear witness of who Jesus is and who God uh, our Father is. And so in verse 1 it says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. And, and the particular um, problem that we have here is actually incest. And the interesting thing was that incest <clears throat> was uncommon. It wasn't totally absent, but it was uncommon in Roman society at that time. But it was, in fact, forbidden by Roman law, and people could be arrested and charged and punished uh, if, if caught in that uh, situation. And so Paul is saying that there's something happening in this Corinthian church that not even Gentiles are, are um, um, involved in, and that a man has his father's wife. And uh, there's a bit of an exclamation there. And if you've got your Bibles, um, and, and I hope you've got your Bibles, that, that phrase, father's wife, is very interesting. So I want you to turn, if you can, to Leviticus chapter 18 and verses 7 and 8. Because some of the commentators um, uh, argue amongst themselves whether or not uh, this was the young man's uh, biological mother or this was the father's concubine after his other wife, his first wife, had died. And uh, I, I think, I can't see why they're arguing because uh, in Leviticus 18 verses 7 and 8, it quite clearly differentiates between the two. So in, in Leviticus 18 verse 7, it says, the nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your mother you shall not uncover her nakedness. Now, that uncover her nakedness is not simply to pull back the sheets or to, you know, uh, to remove um, dress. It, it's actually more intense and difficult than that. It involves um, sexual conduct. And he's, notice here in verse 7, he says, uh, God says, uh, and the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. And in verse 8, he says, the nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. And there's a differentiation here in 7 and 8 between your mother and then in verse 8, your father's wife, which seems to uh, clearly indicate that uh, God is even um, being so specific about this problem that um, there is one thing, your biological mother, and there's another thing, your father's second wife or, or uh, um, uh, uh, concubine. And regardless of her status in regards to your father, it is still this terrible um, problem with incest. And so that's quite clear that, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I think it's quite clear that in this particular situation, 
um, um, based on Leviticus uh, 18, 7 and 8. I think it's his father's concubine. But that makes him no less guilty for uh, you know, this issue that has come up. And in verse 2, Paul is, is um, um, really remonstrating with the uh, Corinthian leaders now uh, for their attitude towards this because it wasn't only reported, but it was um, apparently known among the, uh, the Corinthian Christians and no one was doing anything about it. That was the problem. And Paul is saying here in, in verse 2, and you are puffed up, that is, you're arrogant and prideful in this area. Why? Because they were boasting of their tolerance of such behavior within the Christian church. And, that was, and there was a problem with the, the theology within the Christian church because they had taken Paul's teachings and expanded on it. And they were, what they were actually kidding each other with the fact that because God's grace towards sinners is rich and it's extensive, they were extending that to saying, no, it's limitless. So if it's limitless, what they were saying was that whatever we do um, is not outside the remit of God's ability to pardon us. So there was no constraints on their behavior. And Paul is saying that you are puffed up, you are arrogant, you are prideful in boasting of your tolerance of such, of such behavior. And he says, and you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed, this is the young man, might be taken away from among you. And Paul is saying, I would have assumed, um, Corinthian elders, that you would have addressed this issue, you would have separated the young man from the fellowship, and you would have um, sent him beyond the boundary and the protection of the church. But they hadn't. And they weren't even upset that this was going on because of the society that they lived in. And it's absolutely amazing. And quite frankly, um, when I was a little kid and going to our local Presbyterian church, there was um, a respect for morality. And I'm not saying that they were perfect back in the days. So I'm talking, I first went to church in 1959. So I'm not talking about um, that there was moral perfection in those days, but I can remember growing up where there was a moral respect for the church, within the church, and even our neighbours in the street where the church was located all respected the church and the minister and people's um, um, participation in the church. There was a respect there. But in Corinth, there wasn't. It, it was just whatever happens in society, they were tempted to bring it into the church. And Paul is really remonstrating with them for this thing. And this, this fellowshipping is not the excommunication that we see in the Catholic tradition, but I really like this particular passage here, and I looked this up for this um, particular verse. And if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 18, um, 15 to 17. Because um, this is, your ultimate authority is always Jesus. And this is a brilliant passage in Matthew 18 from Jesus. 
and it's about church discipline. And so what Matthew, what Jesus is saying recorded in Matthew is moreover, if your brother sins against you, and if he's sinning against you, he's sinning against the church, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you and obviously stops the behavior, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And after that warning, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to hear the church, this is what Jesus says. Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Because it is like a, you know, I was about to say virus with actually realizing the loading that I will give that word in these environments. But it is, it's like a virus because if the, the, the leadership tolerates one instance, then before you know it, you've got 10 incidents and then 100 incidents and the whole church becomes um, a morass of, uh, of uh, sinning and that just destroys the church's witness. And, and so Jesus is saying, A, when you can warn someone one-on-one -on -one and say, look, I know and I'm aware that you're up to this kind of behavior um, and this is not good. And if he still doesn't uh, listen to you, then you take another couple of friends with you and the three of you go and address this with this um, brother in Christ or sister in Christ. And if he doesn't hear that, then take him to the church, eldership, the leadership, and explain it to the church. And if he refuses to even to listen to the church, then, Jesus says you must disfellowship this person. Um, but in all forms of church discipline, the primary motive is restoration. It's not exclusion. The primary motive in church discipline is always restoration of a sinning brother. And that is never to be forgotten because there are far too many people who um, in their own um, immature way, it's, for them it's easier to cast someone away than it is to actually address the issue and, and restore them to fellowship. And if you restore someone to fellowship, um, it's a victory for the kingdom, it's a victory for the church, and um, it, it grows and it, it learns from that. But there is a strict protocol here that even Jesus tells us about and it's very worthwhile looking at that process and it's a process that should be um, followed uh, by each and every one of us when we become um, aware of these behaviors and in verse 3 Paul is saying for in, I indeed as absent in body but present in the spirit I have already judged as though I were present this person who has done this deed so Paul has already passed sentence on him because of the reports from Chloe. And he is, um, he is looking to uh, disfellowshipping this guy until the behavior stops, he repents, and he requests re-entry into the fellowship of the brethren. 
And we know that when we get to the second uh, letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, what we call Second Corinthians, Paul is so excited and so happy that the young man, after being disfellowshipped, did repent and did come back. But without the discipline implied first, then he would never have done it. And so we know later on that there has been a victory in this area. And in verse 4, Paul is writing, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the power that exists within Jesus' name. And I can uh, only remind those who were um, in church a few weeks ago and possibly watched it even online when we gave that testimony of that lady in South Africa that was in danger of being assaulted by four men who were trying to um, <coughs> abduct her or, or kidnap her. And the only defense this woman has was the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And never forget, please never forget the power that's in that name if you um, are called into uh, dangerous circumstances and you don't have any other way out but use the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when Paul is saying, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So what Paul is saying, this guy is going to get a wake-up call because he's going to be disfellowshipped. He's going to be um, blocked from returning into the church environment to taking part in communion, to have fellowship um, meals with one another, which was a common thing in Corinth. And he was going to be shoved back out into the um, unsaved environment. And uh, there is, for such a person, no protection there. And uh, if you want to, and I'm sorry, uh, Eric, I forgot this, but I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy 1 verse 20. And Paul is saying that this is not the only case where he brings this issue up. So if you turn to 1, or, uh, 1 Timothy 1.20, um, he repeats this whole process uh, for the sake of the health of the church. In fact, go back to verse 18, if you've turned there, go back to um, verse 18 because it sets the scene for what Paul actually does in verse 20. And he's talking to young Timothy. He says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. That is contending with people um, within the church and without that are attacking um, young Timothy as a, uh, as a pastor of the church, as a leader of the church. And in verse 19, he says, And having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected. And this is what this, this young man in Corinth is obviously doing. Concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. Verse 20, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have delivered to Satan that they may not learn, they may learn, sorry, not to blaspheme. 
And I think it was uh, Hymenaeus that was reported, um, I think, in one of other Paul's epistles, where he was um, declaring to uh, the, the church that uh, the resurrection, the, um, the rapture had already occurred and that they were in the, um, in, in the day of the Lord already and was um, absolutely damaging the faith of uh, the people that he was speaking to. And so Paul is, is, boy, I'd love to have been sort of walking around just quietly with Paul sometimes when he was engaged in these discipline issues because he's very black and white. He's very cut and dry. He has a heart for his people. He has a heart for the church. But one of the things he will not stand for is people coming into the church, even believers, and dragging their bad habits with them and creating trouble within the church. Um, and, and here's another example where Paul is using this extreme form of, um, of discipline. So um, Paul was advocating excommunicating this person publicly in the church environment as a warning to all members of the church and thrusting them back into this world system, which is Satan's flare of influence. And in verse 6, Paul is saying, your glorying is not good. And their glorying in this, in this uh, context is they were boasting that they were able to be tolerant towards this, um, this behavior. And Paul is saying, you're just completely off the track, you guys. You're supposed to be the leadership of the church and your tolerance towards this behavior is not good. And do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Uh, and, you know, when I was doing this study, I just thought I, I sometimes go about um, baking uh, bread. I've got, you know, one of our own you know, you know, bread makers type thing. And it amazes me when I put in over a kilo of flour and the water and everything like that, all I need is a tiny, tiny half a teaspoon of yeast. And an hour and a half later or three hours later, I've got this beautiful, huge, big risen loaf. And, and I smile because that's what Paul is saying here, because if you leave this conduct within the church, it, it grows and grows and grows and it pollutes far more people than it did at the start. And the, and the leadership here are not addressing this issue. And I had here a kilo of flour, but only seven grains of yeast. It's the same principle. And Paul is saying here in verse 7, therefore, purge out the old leaven. And by this, Paul is saying, listen, you all came from a totally immoral background and from a city that was in this problem. Uh, and he says, get rid of it. Throw it out by word, by deed, by attitude by um, um, uh, conduct, you've got to get rid of your old lifestyle. And Paul uses this idiom of leaven to warn that the failure to remove this person from the church will ultimately risk the destroying the entire fellowship. 
And Paul says, if you purge out the old leaven, that you may become a new lump that is having removed the sin and the sinner, this would refresh and purify the church. Since you are truly unleavened. What does he mean by that? And he says, for indeed Christ is our Passover and he was sacrificed for us. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross made the way for all believers to become new creations in Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You, all of you guys on the screen there in front of me, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you are not, as far as your Father in heaven is concerned, the old you. You are at the new you, and you're the new you heading to an eternal um, uh, relationship with God in the new heavens and the new earth. You are a new creation. The old things have passed away. The, the things that you used to do, the things that you used to say, the things that you used to um, um, regard as not problematic, all of those things you've thrown out like, like uh, rubbish in, in, in the wheelie bin to be collected and taken away. The old things have passed away. And behold, all things, that is you, have become you. And don't ever forget that. You are a new person. Uh, and it's... It, amazes me sometimes in 23 years of, of looking after Christians and Christian groups and um, um, being in the pastorate in churches, how people struggle with um, old habits that they simply can't um, get rid of and they impede their, their growth and their maturity in Jesus. And, uh, you know, whether it's addiction to substances, for instance, or um, behaviours learned uh, in the work environment before you became a Christian, people drag these things along with them. And, and it, it really, um, um, it's a shame because God has given you every spiritual blessing that you could ever need to grow up into full maturity in Christ and be um, a wonderful witness. But it's amazing to me how people stumble in their, in their Christian witness um, because they can't shed themselves from some of the old behaviours. And I think I've told the church this last year that um, particularly when I was doing previous studies in this particular chapter, um, my wife and I um, met a Christian couple down south and um, the man, uh, he was in, they, they were both in their mid-40s and uh, the, the wife had been a Christian for um, more, nearly 30 years as a young teenager and she had married this man who was a non-believer and we get that we get to there in 2 Corinthians 6, chapter 6, and that's a problem in itself. But she married this unbeliever, believing that her faith would be strong enough to, to bring her new husband into the, uh, into the uh, body of Christ. But the sad thing was that he had been quite um, lascivious in his, his, in his lifestyle before he met his, his wife. And unfortunately, he carried on that way 
um, after they married and had been unfaithful many times during their 23 year of marriage when they came and visited Sue and I and were asking for some help. And anyway, this guy had proclaimed that he'd become a new a believer and he was in a church and he had been saved about three years. And uh, anyway, um, he, he was a salesman, he had health products. And he was really keen on, on um, Sue and I using one of these uh, health products. It was like a, a mineral tonic. And I went down to his place one day just to pick some up. And we were talking in the driveway in the um, in his house, and uh, he gave me this you know little can of these um, tablets and that sort of thing. I think it was um, magnesium or something. And uh, I said, okay, I'll, I'll shoot back to Perth. And uh, I said, what are you doing for the rest of the day? And I said, and he said, oh, I'm waiting for a customer to come down from um, um, rural, uh, the rural area near Northern. And I said, oh, okay, that's good. And he said, yeah, he said, she should be here fairly soon. And I said, uh, what do you mean she? And he said, uh, well, she's coming down to buy this stuff. But I said, what, she's coming to your house? And he said, yes. And I said, but your wife's at work. Why have you got a woman coming to your house uh, after your previous lifestyle? And he said, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. I said, there is a lot wrong with that. I said, uh, do you want me to stay and wait for her while she, while she comes? He said, no, there's no need for that. And I said, listen, uh, this is not good, uh, but you're not part of my church. I have no uh, authority over you, but I'm telling you right now, this is not good. Uh, and he then got quite sort of angry because he didn't want to be confronted that way. I said, listen, as a Christian, you're supposed to put that lifestyle behind you. And you're not only to... Um, not engage in unrighteousness, but Paul tells you to you're to actually flee from the very image of unrighteousness, and and uh, he just he just refused to accept it. And I said, well, I'm very uh, I'm very sad that you're you're engaging in this way, and you know it's 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 just one example of I've seen people drag problems into the church from their old lifestyle and cause problems in the church and this is what this chapter is all about and i guess it's part of the chapter the 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 pastor's handbook when you're dealing with churches but um it applied the the, the responsibility um for dealing with this actually lies with all of us because if we can't um at first, like Jesus said, go to someone one on one and say, "Look, um, this is this behaviour is not not uh, uh, glorifying to Jesus. Uh, what are you up to?" Uh, and if he hears you and he, you know, he's he's convicted of it and he repents, great. But Jesus has given us that um, that process in Matthew eighteen to to look at, and so you know, it really does end up nearly destroying the church or in fact uh, the church that we went to in, in way back in the 90s it's a mere shadow of its former self because things like this were not addressed and so um, 
Paul is just saying, you know, you've got to get rid of the old lemon. That's the old lifestyle, the old attitudes. And you've got to, um, you know, fellowship with mature people that will lead you into thinking a new way and behaving a new way. And um, that's what is required of us. It's required of mature Christians when you see young people coming into the church or new Christians coming into the church. It's, I think Jesus actually holds us responsible for encouraging them to leave the old behind and, and uh, adopt the new. And he says in verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast. Now what's he talking about? He's already talked about leaven, and now he says we're talking about the feast, and we're talking about, you. Paul is using idioms of um, Passover, uh, the feast of unleavened bread, the communion, uh, the fellowship meal, all of this he's, he's um, using these idioms. Uh, and in verse 8 he's saying, let, let us keep the feast, which for us is fellowship with Jesus, and not with the old leaven. So he's saying, toss it out, nor with the leaven or of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And sincerity and truth means that you are really trying to live out the Christian life. And by the way, everyone stumbles every now and again, but, but hopefully it's just a, a little trip, not a major incident like we're dealing with in this, in this chapter. But sincerity and truth are the two guidelines that it should be for every concerned Christian and the way that you keep yourself in that environment, in sincerity and in truth, is you keep sticking to this book. You keep reading it. It keeps nourishing you. It keeps feeding you. You, um, uh, it's it, one of the blessings of, of Bible studies is that we have a more intimate ver uh, environment rather than a church, but. This is the thing, this is the voice of God telling us and exhorting us and encouraging us how to live that we would both glorify him and actually enjoy a, a much more abundant life than we had before. And it's, it's, to me, it's tragic and it's, it's heartbreaking sometimes to, to see the, the consequence of, um, of people struggling to do this. And in verse 9, Paul writes, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. And so this is actually a fascinating um, reference to a, an earlier letter that Paul had written to the Corinthians um, because after he left them, obviously, he was concerned about their behavior. He was concerned about the environment in Corinth. So he had written them, uh, the, the leadership of the church, a letter and warning them um, about company with sexually immoral people because Corinth was just swamped with this kind of um, behavior because um, the city of Corinth was at the base of a flat-top mountain and it was called Acrocorinth. Acro meaning height in the Greek, and Corinth. And on this flat top up above, there was the Acropolis, and it was um, a, a temple to pagan gods, 
and it had, and it was famous throughout the Roman Empire for having a, a thousand um, religious prostitutes um, active there in that temple, and so that the the pagan people in Corinth could go up to the Acropolis, and as part of their worship of this pagan deity, and we'll get that get into that later on when we get to 12, 13, and 14, chapters 12, 13, and 14, what was going on behind that. But actually that, that sexual behavior was actually part of their pagan worship. And this is why it was such a problem in, in uh, Corinth. But, uh, you know, it's like, I guess, Las Vegas or somewhere like that on steroids. We've still got those cities today, not, not to that extent but we still had um, pockets of this kind of behavior and churches within cities with those pockets. And this is the danger that we have when we um, um, form fellowships within those environments. And that's what this letter is all about to the leaders of churches in those situations. Um, and Paul was saying, I warned you in my uh, former letter not to keep company with sexually immoral people. And they had misunderstood Paul because in verse 10, he clarifies it. This is a clarification. And he says, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or with extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go off this entire planet. You can't, he's not saying that you, dis, you, you disengage from the society around you because they're sexually immoral, because God planted his church in Corinth to be a witness to the people uh, in Corinth that there is a better way, a better lifestyle, a more rewarding relationship with Jesus Christ than they had ever seen before. And Paul is saying, you're not to leave Corinth and go somewhere else. You're supposed to be a witness to the Corinthians as the church of God in Corinth. Uh, but what he is warning about is that they had sexual immorality in the church, and this was to be um, expelled or done away with. And Paul is saying, you know, we are the salt and the light to a lost world. As, as whatever fellowship we're in, we should be salt and light to the people surrounding the church and in our lifestyle, our workplace, um, and in our families, even in our families with our unsavory, unsaved brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, whatever, we should be salt and light. And salt, in the way that we preserve the teachings of the scriptures, and use them if we have an opportunity to witness to these people. And we are light. We are light because we preach the gospel of salvation. Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried and rose again on the third day that you might have the newness of life that I have. So the salt and the light is part of the, the exhortation that Paul is giving this church. Don't leave Corinth, but don't behave like Corinth. Be the salt and light for these people in this city. And in verse 11, Paul says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. 
who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner and not even to eat that is to fellowship with such a person and these are people who are calling themselves um, Christians and living a lifestyle that is anything but. And Paul is saying, you do not keep company with these people. I don't know um, how many uh, uh, of you people here with us tonight have had experiences that Sue and I have over the years where so often we have seen a believer marry an unbeliever, like I just gave that example before, firm in the um, idea that their faith is going to, to bring their unsaved spouse into the kingdom. And I would say eight times out of ten, the opposite has occurred, that the unsaved spouse ends up dragging the believing person back out of fellowship back out of member, a membership of the church. It's a tragedy. I've seen it time and time again. Sue and I have had to work with people and counsel people who have had broken, shattered lives because um, they did something that Paul warns about in 2 Corinthians 6, is not to be yoked with an unbeliever. Um, and I've, it's amazing how many times I've seen this happen and the damage done is traumatic. Um, but unfortunately, you know, we see it happening uh, even frequently now because people just are convinced that marrying someone, marrying an unbeliever is going to get them saved. Believe me, um, it, it, it's not always the case. And in verse 12, and Paul is saying here, for what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Paul is saying, I don't judge people outside. I witness to people outside. I preach the gospel to people outside because that's how the Corinthian church was started in the first place. Paul went there to start the church and he had Sosthenes, his brother, and he had Priscilla and Aquila who had been cast out of Rome by the, the emperor. And all Jews had to be cast out of the Roman Priscilla and Aquila had end up in Corinth. So Paul had like a little uh, home fellowship. And because he was witnessing and using these people, then they went outside uh, into the society and witnessed to them and kept the process going so that uh, by the time fin Paul had finished his time in Corinth, there was an established church. So you're not supposed to disengage from the world around you but you are supposed to be totally different to the fellowship that is around you. And Paul is saying, I don't judge those who are outside. I want them to come into the body of Christ. I want to come into the fellowship of the brethren. And, and Paul is saying, God judges those outside, and without repentance, they are judged finally at the great white throne in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 14. And I think it's um, worthwhile that if you've got your Bible, please turn to Revelation 20. It's, it's a passage that um, we very rarely go to when we're talking about um, the consequences of failing 
um, to accept Jesus. So Revelation 20, verse 11. And this is, you know, this is a, 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 this is a um, event that uh, apparently um, um, it's a tragedy. And it's a tragedy because I've got stubborn brothers uh, and stubborn nephews and uh, stubborn in-laws who just will not respond for some reason or to, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have seen in, in my wife and I a totally profound change of lifestyle and attitude and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, this is a passage that um, terrifies me when I think of their future destiny. And in verse 11, uh, it says, And then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, to whom has all judgment in heaven and earth been given to? It's Jesus. So this is Jesus there sitting on the great white throne. From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, this is Jesus, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. You know, the book of life was there. This is the book of the Lamb, this is the Lamb's book of life. And the name of everyone from Abel forward who has ever accepted Jesus as their Saviour, their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And you are never going to be there subject to this judgment because your name is in the book of life. But when the book of life is opened at the great white throne judgment, those people who have faced the last resurrection and whose names are not in the book are then judged by their works as unsaved um, um, people. And uh, there is, funnily enough, there are rewards for us in heaven depending on our witness for Jesus Christ. And we worked through um, a few weeks ago the crowns that you can get rewarded with um, by Jesus at the Bema Seat. But there are also um, degrees of punishment for these poor people at the, uh, at the Great White Throne Judgment because the books were open and the books were the records of the works of the people. I mean, I know some really nice, unsaved people, kind people, helpful people, giving people, um, who, who are great neighbours, they've been great friends and all the rest of it, but there is just a shutter between them and Jesus. They can't see Jesus, they won't accept Jesus. And so they actually have to be um, um, judged by their behaviour as unsaved people. 
And Jesus gives us a, uh, a hint of, of this that uh, and when he said, uh, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Capernaum, for if the deeds, the miracles that were done in you, you three Jewish cities at the top of the Lake of Gal Sea of Galilee, if the miracles that I did in you, and you know what? In the Gospels, 60% of all of the miracles that Jesus did were done in that triangle, within that triangle of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. 60% of Jesus' miracles. And what did they do? They rejected him en masse. They rejected him. Not everyone there, but the majority of people in those cities rejected Jesus, even despite his teachings and his miracles. And he's saying, woe to you, you three cities, because if the miracles that were done in you, if they were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented unto this day. That is one of the most staggering passages in all of the Gospels, that Jewish people in three Jewish cities rejected their Jewish Messiah. And Jesus himself is saying that these unsaved, immoral people living in Sodom and Gomorrah had witnessed the miracles, then they would have repented and they would have changed their eternal destiny. Uh, it's just, it's amazing. But there, there appears to be um, degrees of punishment at this great white throne as there are degrees of reward when we all stand before the bean seat of um, Jesus Christ. And in verse 14, because he says in the second half of 13, and they were judged each one according to their works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. And there's a, there's a saying that we have um, within the Christian faith, for a believer, you are born twice, and if you're not raptured, you die only once. Are you listening to me? If you're a believer, you are born twice, and if you're not raptured, you die only once. If you're an unbeliever, you are born once, but you die twice. And this is this um, frightening end to verse 14. This is the second death. And what I mean by that, if you are, every, every human being has been born again from their mother's womb. Okay, so we're all born. But if we uh, become a believer and we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are then born again according to Jesus in John 3.16. And so we are born twice, and if we're not raptured, we only die once, and that's to sleep until we are resurrected. Um, but what happens if you're an unbeliever? You are born once, and you reject Jesus your entire life, and then you die, and then you have to wait for this judgment. And that means 
regardless of your works, regardless of your um, kindness, your mercy, your grace, your whatever, you are still going to be cast into the lake of fire and that shocks people and surely God can't do this and surely you know, there must be another way. No, I'm sorry, this is what Scripture says. So you die twice and this is called the second death. And, you know, I've actually uh, kind of won people over by the, by the uh, enormity of that. But, you know, I'd been witnessing for this guy for a long time and he just didn't understand that phrase. Born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. And it, it fascinated him and he kept trying to work it out himself until he actually got frustrated and, and came and I showed him these verses. And it's... Um, you know, uh, if you have a love for people, if you if you have um, a heart of compassion, you don't want anyone to be in this situation. And it, it really is um, a frightening thing to realize. And Paul says this in verse 12, I don't judge as a Christian those outside. That's God's business. But there is actually this passage in Scripture that tells us that it will happen because it's the last judgment of God before the new heavens and the new earth. And you and I are, the, are citizens of the new heaven and the new earth. And we will be eternally with our Father in the new heavens and the new earth, eternally with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. And, you know, you can pick a silly number, you know, a thousand years from now, a hundred thousand years from now, a million years from from now, we will be still in the new heavens and the new earth with our Father and with our Saviour. Unfortunately, the others will be in the other place for that same period of time and for eternity. And um, it, it, it's this has always been the passage that's always encouraged me to go back to unbelieving people and to go to my um, brothers and just keep um, pounding away at them, saying, you know, um, you can see the change in me, you can see the change in my wife. What is it that you're afraid of to accept Jesus? And, um, and they shrug their shoulders. They shrug their shoulders. And, you know, I was... I was in that same state for, for, you know, my entire life up to the time I was born again. And I can understand it. But the frustration for people like you and I is because we know the truth, because we're born again, we get frustrated with those who can't see the truth and, and, and who do that. But ultimately, they, follow, they, they are subject to God's judgment. And Paul finishes off verse 12 by saying, do you not rather judge those who are inside? That means inside the church. And he says, we are only concerned with the brethren when it comes to discipline and correction. And 13, for those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, Put away from yourselves the evil person. And uh, it's only 13 verses, but boy, um, I've had 
I've been in the presence of two pastors at a pastor's meeting having a go at each other, totally disagreeing on the, the, the profound nature of this chapter. Uh, and, you know, th there are liberal people who say, well, no, that was the God of the Old Testament, but we worship and serve the God of the New Testament. Um, and who is more gracious, you know, uh, uh, he's more gracious and forgiving under the new covenant than he was in the old. But God says, I am uh, immutable, I change not. I am the God of yesterday, I'm the God of today, and I will be the God of tomorrow, and I don't change. Um, and and, and this, that's why I call this chapter the ticking time bomb, because it has... Um, it's probably the most confronting chapter, um, except for, yeah, it is. No, it is. It's really the most confronting chapter because the Bible tells us that every other sin that we commit, like lying, thieving, um, uh, fits of anger and outbursts, whatever, those are all committed outside, outside the body. But sexual immorality is committed by the body and has an effect on the body. And, and um, it's because of that. It's because of the problems with that. Um, we know the consequences. There are medical consequences of this kind of um, lifestyle. And, um, you know, years ago, I worked for a, um, a funeral company. And I have to tell you quite honestly, because you're all, um, uh, adult people that, um, we came into, um, um, the, the environment of people who had in fact died from uh, the consequences of this behavior. Uh, and it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic to watch. It's tragic to, to um, deal with families who have to cope with this. Um, and it's a, a, you know, I'll never forget it. It's just, it's heartbreaking to see it. And, and um, Paul actually warns in Romans chapter 1 about certain people who behave in this way and they receive unto their own bodies the consequences of their sins. So the Bible is full of warnings. Your father has given us so many warnings about how we conduct our life that, you know, the, the people who end up facing the consequence of these things have no excuse because, um, even, you know, even your doctor should be warning you against these things. Uh, and we carry on um, next week with um, issues between, legal issues between believers uh, that's fascinating, but nothing I don't think is as profound as this particular, this chapter.